Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a global market access service from strategy to implementation. This podcast has been converted from a live webinar. To learn more or for a copy of slides, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, hello and welcome everybody. A very warm welcome to this uh, webinar today on strategic and tactical challenges facing orphan medicines entering the European space. And today's webinar uh, will be delivered by a market access consultancy called MTech Access. Uh, we're based predominantly in the United Kingdom. And today, principally, what we'll be doing really is providing a series of considerations and recommendations regarding how one team indeed may go about conducting market access activities uh, with a view to successful gaining successful market access for rare diseases, rare disease treatments within Europe. The webinar today will last roughly one hour and uh, indeed over the course of that hour we'll have three presenters from the MTech Access team uh, presenting on three distinct um, elements of, of discussion and consideration. To that end, I'll now move to my uh, colleagues, Rob and Regina, to briefly introduce themselves before we proceed into the content. Hi, everyone. Uh, so my name is Rob Taff. I'm an associate consultant working with the global team at MTech Access, and I'll be, working, I'll be walking you through the section on future trends, where we'll briefly discuss what we should track and what we should watch out for moving forward. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Regina Ledley. I am a systematic review consultant at MTech. Um, and today I'll be talking about the challenges around evidence synthesis. Thank you, Rob and Regina. My name is Callum Jones. I'm a consultant health economist here at Enfic Access. I've been a health economist for 10 years. I develop cost effectiveness models, budget impact models and associated statistical analyses and have uh, quite a lot of experience in modelling within the rare disease space, particularly in the European sphere. Okay, so that concludes the introduction of our three presenters today. Now, an overview of the agenda we'd like to cover. Now, we've, we'll briefly give an overview of, of who we are at MTech Access and where we come from with respect to our knowledge and recommendation basis for market access in rare diseases in Europe. We'll then move into, on the part of uh, Rob, uh, what exactly we should be tracking and watching out for from a uh, essentially a, a market access and value demonstration standpoint. Uh, Regina will take us through uh, really considerations around clinical evidence generation and uh, actually touching quite notably on how important the patient voice can be in this um, in this process. And thirdly, I'll take on really and guide through a series of modeling uh, conventional challenges faced within the rare disease space uh, when, we're, when we're conducting economic analyses and some of the solutions and best principles and practices we like to, to employ to overcome these challenges. We'll close then with essentially a summary, a recap of what we've covered thus far at that point before moving and opening the floor up to questions to the attendees on the line. So at MTech Access, just rather briefly, MTech Access as a company, we've been around for roughly five years. Uh, there are 80 individuals, employees within, within the company, uh, thereabouts, and we continue to grow and indeed we're growing quite quickly still. And actually recently we were, um, we were told, um, and upon which we can be fairly confident, um, uh, that we're actually the largest um, independent market access consultancy within the UK. Uh, caveat on independent that uh, you might appreciate, but um, I suppose it's an interesting uh, attribute to, to, to note. And what we want to um, overview here very briefly is that indeed our collective experience, our team strengths and, and our offerings uh, spread uh, rather rather evenly across three core areas of expertise that of evidence generation which covers really that classic health economics and systematic review um, stand, standpoint our market access and our value insight demonstration and our insight work through global market access and pricing work and, and particularly strong uk nhs insights um, capabilities and then thirdly our uh, communication um, tools and our um, both regarding health technology assessment or commercial facing tools and materials. Now relevant to rare diseases, from where we're coming today, uh, I would just want to emphasize that really we have quite extensive experience in, in developing uh, materials and, and, um, and outputs from both an HTA and a commercial standpoint for rare disease treatments, uh, particularly within the European sphere, but also elsewhere. And here, what we're showing are 20 indications, which over the last three years, our team across those three 
competency buckets I walked through just a second ago, we've been working within. And based on these indications, working within them and the product and the products and, and um, activities associated with that, what we've done, I, I think, as a company is collectively uh, built up and, and honed, um, I think, a rather keen collective understanding and appreciation for the, the, the challenges and actually the appropriate solutions um, that we'd uh, likely want to uh, expect to face and likely want to, um, to, to roll out when we're looking to, to assist uh, our clients in, in securing successful market access for rare disease therapies within Europe. And to re reiterate so that we have a clear narrative for today, Rob, as, as he mentioned, will be taking us through some of the, um, the, the current and most important current and future market access uh, um, events and, and, um, and, and circumstances of relevance. And some of these actually uh, Rob will, will draw particular attention to with respect to what we ought to be aware of when we're looking to, to, to engage with payers, both at the regional and national level and considering tracking in the future these considerations. And then from a more tactical standpoint, Regina will be what Regina will be walking us through clinical evidence development, particularly from the systematic review side of things and touching really on how we're going to overcome what is a perfectly standard problem within rare disease spaces. I'm sure most people will be aware of a real absence of, of uh, quality and quantity of uh, data, usually uh, from the cost and benefit. Uh, stand uh, where, where we tend to be concerned with and um, and actually also touching today on the patient voice and the importance that can have in plugging essentially gaps that quite naturally exist within orphan diseases. And then thirdly, I'll be walking through some of the key principles and practices we, we, we like to employ within health economic modeling uh, in rare diseases um, as, they, as they essentially seek to overcome the key challenges that we typically encounter. So I'm going to pass now to my colleague Rob, who introduced himself earlier. Uh, to, to take us through what we should track and watch out for in the in the market access space. Thank you, Rob. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Callum. So, as I'm sure you're all aware, like the field of rare diseases is dynamic and it's constantly evolving. So, given that rare diseases affect over 30 million people in Europe alone, it's obviously a key area of focus across this region to provide innovation both in the medicines provided for these diseases and in the healthcare system infrastructure to ensure that patients have timely access to medicines that address their unmet needs. For the purposes of this webinar, we've broken these advances down to three key areas. And while we cannot touch on everything occurring during this webinar, we will cover a few of the main and more recent developments. So next slide, please, Callum. So looking first at orphan drug policy updates, there have been a number of updates over the past year. And generally, these are focused on ensuring early access to rare disease therapies. And moving forwards, it's expected that further innovative proposals for improved ease of access will be seen. So, as an example, in 2017, an analysis found that Britain was slower than other countries in the speed at which patients receive new treatments, with a 75% lower uptake of new drugs in the first year compared with France, Germany and the US. In January of this year, the MHRA published new guidance and information for the pharmaceutical industry post-Brexit, including the introduction of the Innovative Licensing and Access Pathway, or ILAP, which aims to reduce the time to market for innovative medicines by giving companies the opportunity of very early engagement, potentially even at preclinical stage, with key players in the UK healthcare system, including the MHRA, NICE, SMC, and NHS England. And in fact, the first innovation passport has already been granted for a rare genetic disorder that causes cancer. So looking a bit more broadly, the EU's orphan medicinal product regulation has existed since around the year 2000 and in doing so has provided financial and scientific assistance to support product development and market authorization, as well as granting companies up to about 10 years of marketing of exclusivity for innovative treatments. So this is currently in the process of reform, with change expected to focus on perceived unmet clinical need <clears throat> me, and to discourage indication stacking. However, it is a possibility that the reforms may reduce the period of market exclusivity and they may narrow development incentives, but we're just going to have to keep our eye on any developments in this area as they emerge. And finally, the European Commission are actually looking to establish a European fund to negotiate and purchase orphan drugs or other life-saving therapies in case of health emergencies. So potentially, this could reduce disparities in the availability and time to access innovative medicines across Europe. And the Commission adoption is planned for Q1 of next year. Again, this is just another one for us to keep our eyes on, really. Next slide, please, Callum. So 
Orphan drugs have gained some of the most expensive price tags within the industry. And as a result, we're often seeing moves from payers to tackle pricing and share risk with manufacturers. So here we have some different sides of that coin. In terms of novel funding mechanisms, the UK government has recently unveiled England's long-awaited Innovative Medicines Fund, which will have an annual budget of around £680 million, half of which will maintain the existing £340 million allocated to the Cancer Drugs Fund, and half of which will be used for treatments for all pathologies, uh, though rare and genetic diseases are likely to be prior priorities here. In an update to another funding mechanism, IFA, or you know, the Italian Medicines Agency, has temporarily suspended the evaluation of new applications to its 5% fund. So this fund provides access to orphan drugs and off-label treatments that are not yet reimbursed by the Italian healthcare system. However, resources allocated to the fund have actually almost halved over the last decade, while at the same time, applications for funding have grown steadily, with IFA receiving approximately 2,000 applications so far in 2021. So given these dwindling resources, the agency has actually decided to temporarily suspend evaluation of new funding applications and is instead going to review how the system works with a view to streamlining and optimising it. And I think particular attention will, will be paid to redefining the fund's rules and their criteria. Uh, so the Italian government has also recognised the need for increased spending in this area and they're actually increasing overall funds for innovative medicines from the current total of 1 billion euros to 1.3 billion euros by 2024. Finally, in Spain, there are often long access delays and poor availability of orphan drugs, with an average delay of 665 days following an issuing, issuing of marketing authorization by the European Commission. So of all the rare disease therapies approved by the EMA, only 40% are actually reimbursed in Spain. And recently, the Spanish HTA body has agreed an innovative payment by results agreement with regional pricing variations for a new therapy in large B-cell lymphoma. So in the first stage of that deal, the pharmaceutical company will receive a partial payment that will be adjusted based on the results in each patient and in each of Spain's 17 autonomous communities. And in the second stage, the Ministry of Health will use this data to calculate the cost of therapy that the company must pay and potentially negotiate adjustments to the deal if necessary. Next slide, please, Callum. Thank you. So innovations are fairly urgently needed in rare disease research. The number of patients recruited for rare diseases trials is naturally quite low, and that complicates the ability to run studies. Even, even just getting sufficient patients in the study can be really tricky, and a typical option for increasing the, this number of patients can be by using multiple sites across the world. But obviously, in addition to being logistically challenging, this can also introduce another layer of heterogeneity in the data, which isn't always favorably reviewed. In fact, the head of the GBA has recently commented that drugs are being approved for use earlier and earlier with weaker and weaker evidence, and therefore authorities have to try and keep a balance between the need for urgently required treatment alternatives and good evidence on a drug's long-term additional benefit. And therefore, health technology agencies and pharmaceutical companies are looking at innovative ways to improve their data collection whilst ensuring rapid access to treatments. And obviously, I know Callum and Regina will both go into a little more detail on this later on. So at the minute, NICE is looking at increasing the flexibility in filling evidence gaps and reducing uncertainties using real-world evidence in areas where evidence generation is actually difficult, for example, with orphan drugs. So as part of this drive, NICE have recently announced a new collaboration with a healthcare analytics company who also have a contract with the FDA. <clears throat> this partnership will investigate how real-world evidence studies can be used to fill evidence gaps and reduce uncertainties in guidance development. It will also examine the optimal timing of post-launch real-world evidence studies on comparative effectiveness and develop tools for planning and reporting on the implementation of real-world evidence studies. So in the future, this will ensure that NICE committees have more flexibility where evidence generation is particularly difficult, and obviously in this case, with respect to orphan drugs. In February of this year, the GBA mandated real-world evidence collection for Novartis' gene therapy, Zolgensma through which physicians prescribing the therapy must agree to participate in a registry study. So this evidence will be used to support Solgensma's third assessment in Germany, which is scheduled for 2027. And ICWIG is currently actually looking into the process of defining how mandatory real-world evidence collection should be structured for two additional therapies. So clearly, this is an area of interest within the German system, and it's clearly picking up pace. And finally, the FDA is also expected to release its guidelines for the use of real-world evidence in regulatory decisions in early 2022. 
So within this evolving landscape, there's clearly a growing recognition of the value of these types of data in regulatory decisions. Uh, next slide, please, Callum. So I'm going to give a very quick overview of some ongoing European collaborations, which may be of some interest in the near future. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, cross-country collaborations on medicines access has taken a bit of a backseat as countries have tried to respond to the crisis. However, the pandemic could actually revitalise these initiatives a bit as pressure on public spending grows, particularly in view of the number of high-priced drugs, including for um, advanced orphan therapies, that are set to come to market. So following the expiration of UNETA in May 2021, a new consortium of 13 agencies has received a two-year contract until the 16th of September 2023. And this consortium is imaginatively named UNETA 21. So this project is intended to build on the achievements from the UNETA joint actions and focus on supporting a future EU HTA system. And one of the achievements of the previous UNETA was Joint Action 3, which made recommendations to understand the similarities and the differences between the concepts of significant benefit and added therapeutic value in the context of orphan drugs. Therefore, amongst its other tasks, UNETA 21 will be responsible for implementing these methods. Another new European HTA collaborative network is the Heads of Agencies Group, or HAC. And these, this has been established by 19 national organisations to facilitate high-level strategic exchange and discussion. And this is intended to complement UNETA 21. So it'll be interesting to see, moving forward, how the HAC actually approaches mission and how it works with UNETA 21. And finally, we have the Beneluxo Initiative which is a collaboration between Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Austria, and Ireland in pharmaceutical policy. So through collaboration, this initiative aims to ensure sustainable access to an innovative medicines at an affordable cost for patients. So besides undertaking joint price negotiations, uh, the partnership works together on horizon scanning, health technology assessments, and sharing of knowledge and expertise on policies and challenges yet to come. The Benelux Initiative actually has recently, recently negotiated its first tripartite pricing and reimbursement deal for rare disease gene therapy. And this is the first time that Belgium, Ireland and the Netherlands have jointly reached an agreement on the price of a drug. So it'll be interesting to see moving forward how many rare disease therapies are assessed through this method. Next slide, please, Colin. So in light of the changes that I've very briefly described here across these areas of interest, Market access teams really need to ask a number of questions, including what do these new access challenges mean for European pricing strategy? How do they adapt to the trends as they develop their clinical trial program? And what conversations should be had in order to optimize patient access to their product? So the unique environment for rare diseases also impacts our tactical approach. Uh, however, for that section, I'm gonna pass on to Regina and Callum for their takes on how we tackle these issues. Thanks, Rob. Um, so today I'll be talking about uh, the tactical challenges with evidence generation. Um, in the area of rare diseases, we do face certain challenges in terms of evidence generation. The populations are small, meaning that the randomized controlled trials, which are considered the gold standard, are not always feasible or ethical. Conditions are typically chronic and complex, and it can be difficult to demonstrate a a positive impact on patient outcome. Populations are often heterogeneous and have associated comorbidities. All these factors contribute to a paucity of evidence. Uh, next slide, please, Callum. Why do we need evidence and how do systematic reviews support market access? Uh, we need evidence to support, uh, to, we need evidence to inform global value dossiers and um, HTS admissions, health economic models, and orphan designation applications to identify evidence gaps, to, uh, to prioritize research areas, and to illustrate the severity of a condition and the impact on the lives of patients and their families and carers. We can do this by conducting systematic reviews where research questions address the burden of illness, epidemiology, the cost of illness, treatment patterns, and the effectiveness of any treatments available. Next slide, please. Um, rare disease presents different challenges. 
Up to now, we've talked about the paucity of evidence, and it's important to highlight that while this is the case for many rare diseases, some like those on the left are well-researched with large amounts of clinical data. They've got high levels of clinical recognition. There are established guidelines, and they're part of newborn screening programs and often have treatment options available. There's a broad spectrum of conditions in between these extremes where evidence is emerging, and it's important to consider each rare disease separately and the unique challenges that they present. Next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, for rare diseases, it's important to think outside the box when it comes to the search for evidence. In addition to the standard databases, it's important to consider clinical experts, rare disease organizations, rare disease websites, patient advocacy groups, registries, and conferences. Clinical experts have a knowledge of diagnosis and nomenclature. Um, and can contribute to search strategies, especially in the absence of guidelines or where, there, where the nomenclature or diagnosis has evolved over time. Patients and carers also have a contribution to make, which we'll go into later in the presentation. Uh, next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, looking at this first case study, um, it was a systematic review to identify economic evaluation, course and um, cost and resource studies, and health state utility value studies. There was an expected paucity of evidence, and with this in mind, the scope was broadened to include other neuromuscular and neurodegenerative conditions, which were similar in severity and in the impact on patients and carers. In this example, there were five SMA studies and a further 15 studies with proxy conditions, giving a total of 20 studies. The evidence base was expanded using this strategy. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, in a second case study of the systematic review of a prevalence of a specific lysosomal storage disorder, here there were some known studies that were not retrieved by initial searches for this specific condition. Overarching terms were added to the search strategy to make it more sensitive but less specific. And here we were able to retrieve a higher number of records. In addition, uh, a survey of clin clinical experts was conducted. And as a direct result of this, 75% of the evidence for point prevalence and 19% of the evidence for birth prevalence came from the survey. Conducting the survey proved incredibly worthwhile. Further challenges exist around the interpretation of data. But both these case studies illustrate the paucity of data and some of the strategies to overcome these challenges. It also highlights the importance for taking an individual approach to rare diseases. Next slide, please. Uh, lastly, we'd like to focus on the importance of patient and care involvement and the importance of the patient voice. Patients and carers are often highly knowledgeable and engaged in research. They're experts of their own condition, and it's helpful for them to share their expertise to improve care, treatment, and the lives of patients. More specifically, they can identify patient-centered research topics, select outcomes and measures. They can increase recruitment, enrollment, and retention in trials, incorporate the person patient perspective into study design, uh, collect unpublished data and validate patient reported outcome tools. This can be achieved by empowerment and education to give patients and carers the skills and confidence to partake in workshops, focus groups, governing bodies and committees. Next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, finally, just to recap, Considering evidence generation and the challenges when launching a rare disease product, these are the key takeaway messages. Expand on traditional resource sources for information retrieval, include clinical experts and patient group representatives. Consider proxy conditions and consider the patient perspective. 
Thank you. It's over to you, Callum. Well, thank you very much, Regina. And, and indeed, Rob, thank you very much too. So, so we'll now move to considering, um, as, as mentioned previously, uh, key considerations uh, regarding challenges of health economic modelling within orphan disease spaces. And, and indeed, um, some, of, some of the core principles and practices which we tend to employ uh, with a view to overcoming these, these challenges. So I wanted to begin with a, with a, a fairly broad overview of just some of the key tactical challenges that we would, we would um, suggest are, are prevalent within health economic modelling in, in rare, disease, uh, the rare disease spaces. Firstly, I think the most, the most um, pertinent is likely the fact that, of course, if we have very little precedent, there's very little example of, of um, a disease area having modelled in the first place, particularly with regard to whether actually the disease area has been modelled with a view to submitting to an HTA body, a health technology assessment appraiser. If there's not a lot of that, then naturally um, what follows is that actually creating a, a conceptualization of the patient journey, of the treatment paradigm around that patient journey and the nuances around that patient journey and some additional key assumptions associated with how we model that patient journey. We actually have to sometimes, frankly, come up with these largely by scratch. And it's either by scratch in sense of a de novo approach, or it's very possibly going to be, if we can, leveraging as much as we can in learning terms from analogous diseases, uh, trying to leverage as much as we can from uh, learnings, uh, essentially from HCA appraisal uh, feedback of the past on something that's rather similar that allows us to, to to consider okay these were key learnings for a very similar disease area um, in which the health economic model was developed um, it is plausible that these will be relevant to us and so we're going to tentatively adopt these and look to validate these as we go down the path of, of model development Next, we have, of course, inherent within rare diseases, a concern around the, um, the trials that are, that are run. Now, the trials are typically run to a very high standard in, in, the, in, uh, the, in Europe, in these Western, Western world markets, um, without a doubt. But indeed, inherent within the rare disease space is that quite often we're dealing with small sample sizes um, and indeed short trial follow-up. It's actually um, a dual uh, condition put upon our, our samples, our, our sample data that we have that all contributes ultimately to a, a greater sense of uncertainty. So if we consider that we began based on limited precedent of modeling exercises, that, that we began with an uncertainty around the structures uh, that we ought to be accommodating or using to accommodate expected clinical patient pathway and treatment paradigms, if that's uncertain, and needs to be validated, that's compounded with an uncertainty associated with actually not much patient level data available from the trials in which are, are, we're interested. So not enough patients sometimes, and uh, not enough time passed within the trial to, to, um, to ensure we're hitting final endpoints of interest. And of note, with respect to small sample sizes, as you might appreciate, I think most on the call may appreciate the concept that, of course, we're, we're sometimes interested um, in breaking down our population into subsets. Um, Sometimes uh, the HDA body in question will have stipulated in advance or in its guidance that within this disease area or collection of disease areas, they're interested in, in considering, okay, an overall benefit of this therapy against the best next best comparator, uh, but actually also within perhaps uh, certain clinical or, or demographic subgroups. And, and indeed, of course, once we start cutting down that already small sample size with, with short follow-ups into smaller groups, the uncertainty is just exponentially increased. If we cycle round to the bottom right here, a fairly similar consideration associated with that is that we actually are likely to have trouble, this is associated to the short trial follow-up, we're likely to have trouble getting data on final endpoints of interest. So uh, for example, if we're thinking about our very rare oncology uh, indication, uh, it may be the case that overall survival is rarely attained within clinical trials or, or reported subsequently in the literature. So not much data on overall survival in this hypothetical context. And so actually what we may have to require, what we may be required to use would be clinically validated previously, or indeed what we're looking to later validate as appropriate surrogate endpoints. Something that we deem to be uh, on, with good grounds to be a good intermediate predictor of that final endpoint. So overall survival, perhaps predicted by progression-free survival, perhaps predicted by overall survival at 12 months. It's an arbitrary example, but hopefully one that is illustrative of the problem. Um, now, naturally, if we're using surrogate endpoints, this is a structural uncertainty that we, uh, a degree of uncertainty that we're introducing that cannot necessarily be overcome. Um, 
with the exception of, and I'll touch on this later, employing as much transparency as we can so that it is clear as possible to the HDA body what we've done and why we've done it, as well as making sure we are validating this as extensively as possible with key clinical experts within the field and external health economists if necessary um, to validate our the, and justify the use of our surrogate endpoints and the inferences from which we draw from that surrogate endpoint uh, with respect to what we expect the final endpoint to look like. Anyway, it's a key problem within orphan disease um, health and economic modeling, essentially, that final endpoints can be very hard to attain. And cycling around to the bottom left here, interestingly, of course, quite often we're going to have a clinical trial around which we're developing a health economic, health economic model for a rare disease treatment. That because we have that clinical trial, we're likely to have, albeit a, a paucity of, but some data for the intervention of interest that we're interested in. But we're not necessarily going to have the same data having been replicated or, or, or equally on an equal basis produced for comparator treatments, interestingly, right? So it may be that comparator treatments were, um, were conducted, uh, went through HTA a long time ago. They may not have gone through HTA. It may not be quite as clear as we'd like um, exactly what inputs they, they, uh, they were using, what assumptions they were using. Um, the data may not be cut in the way that um, that matches the trial of interest that we're dealing with at the moment. And essentially, there's a myriad of concerns there around does the uh, does the client's intervention trial um, really can it be supported compared against actually other comparator trials? This is a this is often a concern around which our development of the concept of the structure for our model must account for. It must be accounting for that. Um, for not just suiting the trial that we're in, that we're, we're dealing with directly, but also what's been done for comparators in the past. An associated problem associated with sparse data, I wanted to call out particularly actually disease management costs, because quite often we're dealing with a lack of precedence for having modeled the disease area historically, and the lack therefore of HDA critiques or criticisms for the assumptions made or some of the costs leveraged for that. Um, it can also be the case that actually attaching credible um, um, Incredible, well-cited disease management costs to the health states or the or the events that we deem relevant for the model can be very challenging indeed. And uh, I'll touch later on on a concept whereby we actually quite often we, we look to um, either go to proxy diseases for this purpose or actually to think more in terms of micro-costing. So to think in terms of we've got different events and health states and we've got to consider well, what are the constituent parts of that um, that event or that experience that a patient is is um, is experiencing. Um, what are they likely to be um, um, exhibiting in terms of their clinical outputs? What are they likely to be treated with? Where are they going to be treated? For how long? So we want to consider in detail, try to try, particularly with orphan medicine disease areas, to think uh, in detail about what are the costs we're likely to experience, given that there's not a great deal of evidence previously that we can leverage for telling us how much it costs to manage these patients. Okay. I will move to the next slide and consider now rolling down straight into conceptualizing and developing economic model structures. So I think what I want to emphasize most here is that whilst every health economic model that we develop um, is what it necessitates is a thorough um, and uh, well-validated and transparent uh, conceptualization and scoping phase, um, it's certainly uh, no more true than anywhere, anywhere else than when we're dealing with uh, orphan diseases. Now, of course, as you might appreciate from what's been said thus far by Rob and Regina, this is all to do with actually overcoming, of course, the inherent uncertainty which we're facing, largely due to the lack of precedent that's been undertaken already. So it's absolutely essential that we run a structured, thorough scoping phase that can be, that is essentially transparent, it's sufficiently flexible for perhaps um, findings that we are going to see down the line out of the trial, the trial as per the protocol. Maybe there are elements that we want to be able to um, adapt the model for at a later stage um, because we, we might see some benefit that wasn't necessarily anticipated in the trial and, and therefore we want the model to already have it built in a uh, flexibility to account for this. That's what I really mean by flexibility there. But flexible also with the methods we're using. So transparent and flexible about the methods we're using and potentially using de novo uh, or indeed proxy-based uh, structural assumptions, proxy being disease proxies. And, and Crucial here is really making sure that the HDA body is, uh, finds it uh, with the greatest ease possible to sit down and understand exactly what we've done, what we've assumed, why we assumed it, and what impact that has on the way the model works and what the outputs uh, and, and what the outputs are likely to to, to constitute. Um, and essentially, just like a systematic review, 
we, we would hope this to be therefore as clear as possible for the HTA body to, to replicate this, um, this analysis in their own way. As I think we're all aware, uh, NICE in single uh, technology appraisals is, is, is custom to doing. Not dissimilar to this concept of a thorough transparent scoping process is the balance really we want to strike between the simple and the complex. Now, I think we're all probably um, cognizant of the, the idea that in a model you could seek to model every possible um, um, iteration or, 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 um, or facet of a, of a disease and a treatment pathway. You could try to model everything. Of course, we're not going to do that uh, largely for, for um, we've got to be realistic about time capacity. We've got to be realistic about overloading the model with excessive complexity and uncertainty. Therefore, and we, nor do we want to be as simplistic as possible, well, too simplistic in the sense that we're going to miss perhaps key clinical endpoints and considerations that otherwise would not allow the model to carry weight with clinical experts within the field and with HTA assessors. It therefore follows that what we're looking for is a balance between the simple and the complex, that ultimately we're looking for a model structure and a, and a concept and accompanying assumptions that are going to resonate strongly with key clinical experts within the field and at the same time is parsimonious, is efficient enough to be built as a model that works um, in, a, in a fluid uh, manner, is transparent, isn't introducing too much uncertainty um, that uh, ultimately can't be accounted for in a technical report or a communication set of materials and ultimately therefore is, is one that actually is, an, is enabling us actually to be as comprehensive as possible to capture all relevant outcomes, but is actually as readily understandable and replicable as possible. So that balance between simple and complex is inherent at all times within our, our frame of mind in that scoping and development. And I've touched already on the idea on the right-hand side here of the inherent uncertainty in the structural considerations that we have. And it's absolutely, absolutely essential uh, when, we're, when we're building a, a cost-effectiveness model or, or any kind of value-based demonstrating tool within rare diseases that we're looking to leverage as best as we can uh, clinical experts uh, or indeed patient advocacy groups through um, or patient advice groups rather um, through either interviews or ad boards um, and actually to, um, to appease and accommodate for many of their suggestions through that validation. We're also looking, of course, to use as flexible scenarios as possible to make sure that the model can speak to each of their concerns and considerations as best we can. Um, what we don't want, of course, is to submit a model to, to NICE or, or, or equivalently, say, ICWIC, et cetera, and have uh, that model come back in the HGA submission with a number of critiques and criticisms saying our, um, our review group has considered these additions or these changes to make to the model. We made them and we found this and it would have been good if you'd done this before. So we want to make sure, of course, we're always absolutely ahead of the game in that respect and limit that, that critique return as much as we can from the HD bodies we submit to. And clinical experts and patient advocacy groups are crucial in that validation process. And lastly, real-world evidence um, is crucial in many ways, but actually alleviating uncertainty with respect to the clinical pathway and the treatment paradigm is quite interesting usually to, to explore as best you can through clinical expert interviews. In an operational real-world sense, what actually is going to affect challenges to introduce into new therapy? What might affect core assumptions around uptake um, and response and location of treatment and subsequently cost and disutilities associated with these changes. So thinking quite literally about how that, how that treatment is going to be going into the system and perhaps actually disrupting the system relative to existing comparators and how they are rolled out. So we try to consider holistically in a real world sense um, exactly uh, operationally how this intervention is going to work and, and, and make sure that our intervention can, sorry, our model structure and concept can accommodate for that. Now, this is going to sound fairly similar to what Regina was going through earlier, so I won't take too long in saying this, but when we're looking at a rare disease model uh, conceptualization and build, we'll literally, uh, sorry, conventionally have two forms of literature review. First, the targeted literature review, initially for us to be able to gain that key appreciation for exactly what data is out there, and indeed what data isn't there. So identifying the data gaps is more the pertinent idea underlying this targeted literature review. It's not so much to collect the data that will ultimately go into the model, it's to best inform actually um, what the protocol is, needs to be for the systematic literature review that we're um, likely to be uh, required or certainly best practice to go then and, and conduct the systematic review. Now this systematic review is intended and is routinely rolled out um, as we build our, our rare disease models to, to ensure we have that comprehensive collection and, and of, of current data that is available out there. This pertains as you'd expect to um, 
costs of treatment, costs of um, costs of associated with health state management, costs associated with um, ex extraneous uh, events, adverse events, disutilities um, associated with these events or, or, or comorbidities. We're talking um, uh, baseline utilities and how that varies across different demographics or clinical characteristics, um, et cetera, uh, transition probabilities as well, how quickly and likely you are to move between distinct health states and so forth. So this systematic literature review will seek generally to cover um, each of these aspects. Um, through a, through a, um, a firm uh, and clear and, and replicable um, protocol document. Uh, and indeed, the whole, the whole basis of this, of course, is to ensure that what we're putting into our model is transparent and is reflective of a replicable, robust, robust methodology. Interviewing disease experts with respect to the data that we're seeking to collect, that we do collect, and the way in which we draw inferences from the data we collect is absolutely crucial, again, um, go to the clinical experts for that purpose. And again, patient advocacy groups and, um, and support groups uh, could certainly play a key role in that respect. Third, um, thinking actually specifically about some key considerations around quality of life and costs when it comes to managing uncertainty and rare disease modeling. I think what's perhaps most relevant to note with, this, with respect to quality of life is that it's inherent again within rare diseases that what we're collecting for quality of life isn't necessarily going to be matching up to the um, to the exact disease states that we specify and conceptualize for our economic model structure. It may actually come from a proxy disease, our quality of life data. It may come from a subset of patients which we're going to have to extrapolate out to a to a larger um, to a larger cohort. Um, but in essence, it is it is important that what we can what we do within our the best of our means is to make sure that we are transparently and consistently collecting that data through um, best practice elicitation methods. There are a number of uh, utility quality of life and elicitation tools that we, we may be familiar with. And also with rare diseases, particularly relevant actually to, to think quite broadly, we've got small sample sizes, so good act, and of usually chronic and really quite nasty diseases. And it's important uh, quite often if we're going to demonstrate benefit between the, the, the intervention in question and the comparators to which it's being compared, to really demonstrate and tease out benefit between A and B, to consider that carer and family quality of life data. Increasingly favorable within nice considerations, thinking more holistically about, um, about societal benefit. But carer and family quality of life, not infrequently a, a consideration when we're, when we're modeling our rare disease um, therapy models. Um, this, this relates to indirect costs, as you might appreciate, and indirect benefits associated with societal uh, considerations as well. <clears throat> notable, notable that quite often it may be the case that proxy that, that quality of life data is available for our disease in question, um, but actually it may come from a, um, from a, a large uh, registry study or, or, or otherwise. Perhaps the United States, if we're thinking about UK for our submission, perhaps a lot of data exists from the United States with the short form 36 um, elicitation model for, for quality of life. It's necessary and perfectly feasible within MTIC access, for example, to, to, to actually map um, using a, a, a routinely applied algorithm our values from the SF36 over to the uh, Euroqual 5D, five dimensions, and make sure that we're therefore taking from one um, essentially uh, quality of life language and we're taking and, and transplanting that onto another um, through, through recognized methods. So, and that's quite a routine requirement that, uh, that we use within uh, disease areas which have so little quality of life data that's generally been published. I think a key consideration around costs, uh, just to be to be brief, um, is, is actually that because actually with rare diseases we're considering usually treatments that are likely to be uh, marketed at rather high costs, it's, 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 um, it's, it's a perfectly natural um, situation that, that rare diseases um, are typically associated with, with high expenses of, of, of drug and um, of medication acquisition costs um, ultimately it's all the more relevant to consider actually when and why uh, drugs are not are going to be not taken right so so it would be perhaps folly and inaccurate and most importantly inaccurate to consider that um, a medication will be uptaken to be administered um, for for essentially for the remainder of the time horizon without exception uh, we need to be considering as closely to reality as possible the reasons and the time at which people are going to be discontinuing what are the stopping rules and indeed, if a stopping rule is brought in, what consequences will that have for the patient's subsequent patient journey, uh, patient um, uh, disease journey, and so forth? You can imagine there might be um, a, num a number of considerations that come from a, well, from from applying a stopping rule rather than not applying that stopping rule. These patients will have different experiences, and we have to account for that. 
but certainly we can avoid excessively applying uh, high drug costs if we consider um, at all times that these drugs wouldn't always be provided and perhaps actually it will only be for a short time and, and we have to consider the efficacy associated with a, with a drug that isn't going to be given for as long as another. Uh, there, may be, there may be durational benefits that we need to be considering in that respect as well that's related to stopping rules. And thirdly, uncertainty here with respect to data. Well, what's undoubtedly um, the case, I think, for, for, for any team that's going to be modeling rare disease um, uh, model, model exercises is, is thinking really to employ as many um, plausible and clinically, um, clinically useful scenario analyses that allow us to run um, stability tests on the results of the model. Um, stability tests really to, to test um, if we're going to change inputs by certain, certain amounts, um, how are we going to see those, those results change? Now, modelers on the call will be conscious that really all cost fitness models will entail a deterministic sensitivity analysis by which we vary one variable input at a time and observe the, bent, the, the effect on the overall result of the model and then order that up into, into uh, an order of, um, of magnitude of effect so we can see which inputs are having the most influence and a probabilistic sense of scenario analysis or sensitivity test where we're thinking we vary all variables at the same time simultaneously within their own uh, bounds of, of, of margin of error uh, and, and standard error and, and see how that's going to affect the overall results of the model. Every model more or less has that, but the point is that we need to be demonstrating scenario analyses within rare disease cases that, um, that are specifically allowing us to um, change the collections of, of, um, of inputs associated with key clinically plausible tests. So a key clinical um, event uh, that, that might be extraneous to the conventional um, patient pathway that we map um, could, and, and in many cases, if KOLs advise, should be captured within um, specific um, in, input changing uh, tests um, to, to test that, um, you know, if we have, for example, a, um, a rate of progression that's going to change subject to a, to a certain receipt of treatment that, that wasn't necessarily going to be received by all patients, we're going to have a subset of patients there who receive that treatment, their discontinuation rates will change, their efficacy rates will change, and we want to be able to have a matrix of, uh, of the, the change in inputs associated with that scenario. Um, that's an arbitrary example that I gave there, but it's, it's an example of um, the kind of considerations we might give uh, to, to account for specific clinically plausible variations on the uh, core clinical pathway that we, we model and map. Okay, so with real-world evidence as well, we're looking to alleviate uncertainty as much as possible with respect to data. So, of course, at the time, we could be building a model that is uh, as ready as possible for HTA submission, ultimately. It's got the quality of life and cost data that we require, but we are probably conscious in any given example, no matter how, how best we strive to, to plug every gap as best we can, that there may be um, situations where we might be able to improve upon those estimates. And so real-world evidence should absolutely be considered as a, um, as, as a further um, uh, potential source of, of bolstering what we've already got and making sure that our, our model is as reflective as possible as clinical reality, um, not least the, uh, the reality of the trial and, uh, on which it's based. And lastly, just a, a tip there, um, I I'd recommend to really make sure that um, when modeling in rare diseases, more than ever because of the inherent uncertainty we're facing, to not overfit data. For example, if we don't have a strong recommendation or, or precedent basis for assuming a logarithmic um, assumption for, uh, I don't know, the change in cost over time, for example, although it wouldn't be logarithmic, it'd be gamma, but if we were to assume logarithmic, perhaps, um, Perhaps we don't have that precedent, we don't have good um, justification, best to assume linear. Um, and indeed, by all means, um, run a scenario analysis whereby we assume a different trend of our, of, our, uh, of our data variations over time. But best is a base case that we present to HTA and, and, uh, and essentially exclaim most strongly within our technical report to stick, stick to as simple as possible unless we have good justification to defer or to rather to get away from simplicity to, to from excessive simplicity. But in essence, not to make too much of data of, of the little data that you have. Keep it as simple and safe as possible unless you have good reason otherwise. Okay, so just to wrap up some of the key takeaways around health economic evidence and overcoming challenges um, that we, we typically uh, come across, I just want to re-emphasize that necessity really for um, for keenly balancing between clinical reality and practical simplicity, we need to make sure that 
essentially KOLs on the ground are ultimately going to be entirely satisfied with the base case and the scenarios that we build into our clinical pathway, but also that HTA bodies and others are actually able to readily understand what we're modeling, to replicate it and to critique it without, um, without fear of essentially missing the point or, or, or essentially of misinterpreting our work, which wouldn't be helpful for anybody. Second, to make sure that we are as being as transparent as possible and certainly open and flexible enough to consider innovative designs and structures and associated assumptions. Uh, recognizing that in the rare disease space, it is not prudent to simply um, rely on precedent. It may not exist and it may not be of an adequate quality um, for going forward for the HDA submission in question. And so we have to be uh, ready and open to, with very good reason, uh, move into more innovative de novo designs and assumptions. Uh, thirdly, inherent through the whole process to be validating with clinical experts and patient advisory boards um, the scenarios and the base cases that we assume and run and the data inputs that we seek to put into the model and the way we infer the, the consequence of those data inputs on our results, the inferences we draw from that. And then lastly, to be uh, to be similar, similar to number two above, to be as flexible as possible with our data sources um, if indeed we cannot attain the gold standard. So in essence, considering um, proxy diseases, considering um, proxy assumptions, to be making sure that we are, um, for example, flexibly drawing uh, quality of life data from the SF36 to the UQ5D, to be considering costs from similar diseases that, um, that actually could be applied to this disease. Um, it's just a, it's, it's a matter of life when building um, rare disease models that are our data sources. We're gonna have to strive for gold standard at all times, but recognize that um, uh, we, we've got to somewhat think, think outside the box uh, with respect to, um, to, to, again, meeting that balance between clinical reality and practical simplicity. Okay, so just to reiterate very briefly, uh, Rob kindly, of course, earlier from a market access and value demonstration perspective, walked us through some of the events and trends that would be uh, helpful to, to bear in mind as we go forward in the future for, for um, seeking to attain successful market access within the rare disease space in Europe. Uh, Regina um, kindly uh, walked us through um, considerations of developing clinical evidence, how we're overcoming positive data in that respect, some of the key practices associated with overcoming that, and indeed the role of the patient voice. And uh, very recently, I've just walked through health economics principles and considerations for challenges in, in rare disease modeling. So, we could also look to summarize by thinking actually that what we need to do going forward, I think as, as a community, uh, not just as a market access consultancy like ours, is to make sure that we, we continue to, to foster a deep understanding of um, the, the nuances and requirements within the model, within the market and the challenges re related to access um, that are specific to rare diseases. So really be on top of that. It's a fast moving environment and picture and we've got to be cognizant of that. Um, it's absolutely crucial from a evidence generation uh, point of view, a clinical evidence development point of view, to be thinking always about new approaches, maybe non-traditional sources of evidence retrieval, which is what I was referring to earlier with um, flexibility around data sourcing, and uh, and actually also considering the patient perspective, which is not not infrequently overlooked, um, that I, I would say, um, although that's changing. And then thirdly, really also to be open, as I said very recently, to be uh, to, to de novo new model structures and assumptions and to make sure that we absolutely fastidiously check this, these assumptions and uh, rigorously with clinical experts. Um, and uh, I'd be remiss to, to, to not say that MTech Access are, are, I think, very well placed to, to, to assist um, uh, people in overcoming these challenges with respect to building effective market access and pricing strategies, building robust evidence bases and making sure that we um, build economic models and, and submissions that resonate um, as tightly as possible with peers as, um, as is indeed possible. Okay, so I'm just going to open the, the floor now to questions. I, I think from my, my clock, we probably have several minutes. Um, I don't know, Rob, if you wanted to open us up there. Yeah, thank you very much, Callum. Uh, so we've had quite a lot of engagement from uh, various attendees to this call. So I do appreciate your questions. And if we don't get around to answering any of them, we will certainly follow up after this after this webinar. Um, Callum, I know you've spoken for um, at length recently, so I'm going to give you a break. Uh, <laughs> Regina, I've got a quick question for you uh, from one of our attendees. Uh, how do you use registries or databases as a source of additional data? Uh, thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I, I'd first start by saying that um, registries and databases are really, really huge resource of data. Um, 
There's resources online where you can search for the available registries for conditions. So they're really helpful. Um, I think the problem is with um, accessibility, that they're not always accessible to, to companies such as ours or to ours as the public. Um, but this is an area where patient involve, involvement is becoming more um, prevalent and patients can upload their own data. And there are, certainly there's issues with patient confidentiality and ownership of the data. But it's certainly an area where we can look to in the future and kind of another reason why we should collaborate with uh, clinical experts and patients and involve them in the process. Well, yep, thanks very much. Well, um, Callum, I've got a quick question for you. Um, so apologies if I, if I butcher this. What can you do when HE modelling if the disease area is so rare that no relevant data exists for it outside of the trial? No, I think that's well expressed, uh, probably, actually, Rob. Um, I mean, in essence, of course, we're talking about the sort of um, the, the, er the early terms nightmare situ situation where we are looking at a completely de novo uh, build requirement and, uh, and quite a lot of um, well-evidence-founded flexibility with respect to the data we source and the assumptions we attach to that. I think um, with respect to where we'd start there, we'd consider that well, I mean, I've touched on this, I suppose, briefly already, but essentially the answer to to, um, to our questions in that respect would be proxy diseases in most cases. Um, if we can find absolutely no precedent, and for that, I should say, by the way, if we're conscious that there is no precedent, our SLR is absolutely going to have to confirm that. That previous economic analyses in this space, we have to be absolutely certain that there is no benefit, uh, no HDA submission that has been recently, and I mean, probably within the last 15 years, submitted, critiqued, criticized, recommendations issued implicitly or explicitly, and can be learned from. Now, if our SLR turns up absolutely an answer that there is nothing, then proxy diseases are going to be uh, essentially coming to our rescue. And indeed, in many cases, in most cases, HDA bodies will recognize that as long as our, um, our review um, reports can, can, uh, can best articulate that paucity of precedent. Now, with proxy diseases, what we can typically look to inform are couple of things mainly the quality of life data tends to be rather well um, rather better suited across diseases um, if we're talking about similar uh, comorbidities and adverse events occurring etc than you might find cost and also uh, rare diseases uh, within rare diseases proxy diseases may actually also start to help us to somewhat inform um, the uh, disease uh, health states or, or characterizations of the disease pathway that we want to consider, um, as well as the order in which these disease health states um, function, so essentially the disease and treatment pathway. We'd, we'd look to supplement that with really quite fresh and extensive and broad-reaching conversations with our key clinic, clinical experts um, within the disease area. Probably start with, with suggestions to them that, that these proxy diseases say this, we therefore infer that this is likely to be the case. Um, and look to have a discussion, a, a productive discussion around the applicability of some of these assumptions to this space and perhaps what cannot be applied and start to get a, a, more, um, a more succinct idea of exactly what characterizes this disease relative to the, to the surrogates we're, we're thinking about, the proxies. Um, and of course, any um, proxy uh, disease information we look to leverage is therefore going to be extensively validated by care wells and, and indeed patient groups if possible. Now, of course, this is all encouraged, particularly if HDA bodies have previously um, evidenced a, a desire or an openness to accepting proxy uh, disease information. And so that, that should encourage us, should that be found. I think, um, I think with cost, the, the, what, I, what I'd probably state is that whilst one could consider or try to infer costs from um, proxy disease health states, for example, uh, and took that, take that into our disease area, We'd have to be very careful to consider exactly what's going on in those proxy disease health states with respect to process, with respect to where patients are, what can happen to them, et cetera, what is being given to them. Um, we have to be sure, again, with clinical conversations and validation, that what's happening in our disease area actually entails the same circumstances for our patients, that, that the same resource is being given to these patients, that they are experiencing similar events, uh, an order of events, for example. And so once we validated that, uh, we, what we're doing in that respect, therefore, is essentially sort of jumping into something of a micro-costing accountancy style of cost build. Um, that's quite conventional within rare diseases, uh, rare disease modeling. Um, I think it's probably lastly worth pointing out again that, you know, I mean, 
existing precedent in, in the literature and trials may be rare now. And we can look to uh, leverage as much as we can from um, proxy diseases and, and, um, and, uh, and straight from clinicians. But real world evidence has a major role in that respect for ultimately, uh, for, for now, building a model that does its best leveraging um, cross, cross disease examples, but actually in future strives to have disease specific examples drawn from real world evidence um, with conventional caveats that HGA bodies require in terms of treating and, and uh, attaching assumptions around that data. But Rob, that's a, that's a fairly long answer to a fairly short question, so apologies. For it was that. very comprehensive. I, I, well, I hope it's appreciated. Certainly, I've, I've learned a lot anyway. Um, Calm, I think we've just hit two o'clock, so I think we may have to call it there in terms of questions. But obviously, for any who, who are listening at the minute, uh, we will absolutely follow up after this webinar. Indeed. Thanks, Rob, for touching on that. Yes. It Incredibly grateful for everyone who's been able to join. Um, your attendance is, is very much appreciated. As we say here, you know, we're very, very open as a company to this. Please do stay in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and indeed to speak about your next project. You know, we're always here to help. Um, you can see on this slide deck, which we will circulate, our email address, our phone number, and our website, and indeed uh, our keep in touch uh, bases on the right hand side. But otherwise, it's a case of thank you very much. I hope you have a great day and, um, and best wishes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes.